and that's nuclear, that's small modular reactors, and uh, I want to help do for small modular reactors what uh, others have done with uh, wind and solar. Canada is primed and ready to show global leadership on that front. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Today's podcast extends a theme featured in a number of previous podcasts on future technologies. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom. This time, the conversation is about nuclear energy, and I'm joined by John Gorman, the President and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association. In my conversation with John, we discuss nuclear's place in Canada's energy mix, the imminent arrival of small modular reactors, nuclear waste, and even medical isotopes. And like many previous podcasts, we close the conversation with some book recommendations. Here is my conversation with John, recorded mid-September 2020. John, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Francis. Great to be here. You know, I've had an opportunity to to chat uh, with Anne Raphael uh, from uh, Water Power Canada because uh, hydro is uh, provides roughly sixty percent of the electricity uh, used in Canada. But the next largest chunk of uh, generation in Canada uh, is from is from nuclear power, and in some jurisdictions, Ontario, uh, it is the the largest source of electricity. So how important yeah let's start off with just the, the small questions right how important is like nuclear is a, a a very significant piece of the electricity picture in ontario and in new brunswick uh, can you can you can you kind of give us a, a bit of a sense of of how important it, it is in, in the overall sure, picture yeah yeah I'd, I'd love to i mean listen i bet i bet some of your listeners are probably surprised uh just to to uh hear the fact that nuclear is providing two-thirds of Ontario's electricity, and it has been for 60 years, right? Yeah. Uh, a third of New Brunswick's uh, electricity, clean electricity. Mm-hmm. And as you said, 15% of, uh, of Canada's electricity. I mean, it's, uh, it's a major electricity source uh, right, right there behind, uh, behind uh, water power. Right. And in terms of its importance, um, you know, where, where, where can I start with that? Um, you know, Francis, my, uh, you know my background well. I'm, I'm, I've been in the electricity sector for a long time, uh, born in Ontario. Yeah. And uh, when I made the move from renewables um, to nuclear, uh, you know, I had to do a lot of homework, despite, uh, despite uh, being, being from Ontario and getting two-thirds of our electricity here. Right. Uh, I knew surprisingly little uh, about it. So, well, hey, before we get into the homework, why don't we go there for a moment? Because uh, you know, for the for the sake of the listener, um, you're, you're relatively new to the nuclear side of of the business. But could you could you give the listener a sense of of what was sort of your progression um, when you were when you were in grade school? Did you say to yourself, "I want to be a, a lobbyist and and run an association for nuclear power"? Uh, how did you get to where where you are so, today? 
Somehow, I, I think I was probably riding in a fire truck or something before. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, you know, uh, I've been I've been involved in the electricity sector for about twenty years, and it was a conscious decision, right? I, I think, like like a like like a lot of people, I I began to get uh, I began to get pretty concerned about climate change and wondered uh, what I could do to to uh, you know, be engaged with that. And uh, it was around the time that I was appointed to the board of uh, Hydro Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And uh, clean electricity was a, a large part of, of uh, what Hydro Ottawa was doing. It, it owned uh, generating assets. And there were interesting things coming up like uh, distributed generation through solar and smart grid was starting to make, uh, to make an appearance. And I thought, you know, maybe I can, can start melding what I do uh, with my day job uh, with, with wanting to contribute to to uh, to uh, reducing GHGs and fighting climate change, and so electricity sort of became um, my way of wanting to do that. And uh, through the years, um, I've, I've been an advocate uh, primarily for renewable electricity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, lately, uh, you know, just before joining the Nuclear Association, uh, I've been a developer of renewable energy projects with a with a large company, and mm -hmm. of course, ran the Canadian Solar Industries Association for for about seven years. Okay. Um, but you know, uh, Francis, the, the what we've accomplished with renewables is quite remarkable. You mm -hmm. know that better than anyone. A global perspective now. Uh, wind and solar, some of the most cost competitive forms of electricity, depending on where you are uh, on earth. And, um, uh, but despite the amazing growth of, uh, of wind and solar, you know, 20 years ago, when I started in this field, uh, we were at 36% non-emitting electricity on the world's grids. And yeah. 20 years later, uh, despite this growth and all of the investment, uh, we still have only 36% non-emitting electricity on the world's electricity grids. Right? So it hasn't moved globally, but it has moved in Canada. But it, I didn't realize it hadn't moved globally. It, it hasn't moved globally. And um, that's, that's a real issue, right? I mean, thank goodness for, for wind and solar, because I think it's enabled us to stay steady despite the uh, rising demand for electricity. But, you know, we don't have another 20 years yeah. Uh, to spend and not move that dial. And, and I think uh, really the, the reason that we're not moving fast enough is because uh, gas and coal um, fossil fuels are continuing to be used to complement uh, wind and solar, the intermittent mm -hmm. sources of electricity. So what are we gonna do? We need uh, a clean source of electricity that can couple with those. Water, as remarkable as it is, isn't available everywhere and nuclear um, has proven itself over 60 years now to be able to decarbonize um, entire economies and right. technologies that are coming on board with small modular reactors. Uh, we have a perfect partner for intermittent sources of renewables to really unleash the, the power of wind and solar and uh, complement it with clean nuclear. So that's why I'm here. Okay. One of the things that you mentioned was, was complementing uh, intermittent renewables. Isn't that a, one of the challenges for, for nuclear power? It, do, it can't easily ramp up and ramp down to, to match the intermittency of wind or solar? Right. Well, you'd be surprised uh, the these big conventional plants uh, that, that, you know, people are aware of, the that, that are, are being operated in Ontario and, uh, and New Brunswick right now, mm -hmm. these big can-do reactors, uh, they can still load follow. And in Ontario in particular, some of the Bruce plants are doing a really good job of helping to support uh, wind, wind power. Okay. We've got a lot of wind power here and it, uh, it helps complement that. But what's really exciting is these, these new small modular reactors, yeah. which can be very small, right? Like fit on the back of a truck 
uh, or uh, you know, at one megawatt, uh, or they could be 300 megawatts big and attached to a power grid, but that's still very much smaller than these conventional plants. And the thing about small modular reactors is that they are really able to load follow and provide <laughs> flexible electricity and heat. So that means, uh, and, and do it literally as well as uh, gas uh, fire generation can, so a real uh, viable replacement for fossil fuels on the grid to help ensure we can get the most out of intermittent uh, wind and solar. Okay. Yeah, and I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, small modular reactors. I'm fascinated by by the technology and what it might look like. But I guess maybe the the first question I'd ask you, John, is how far away are they? Are they are they still science fiction, uh, or or are they really something that is that is imminent in terms of being deployed? So my favorite question. So I'm going to be oh, all over okay. that. But I, I don't want to. I, I I feel like I shortchanged you on the first question. So just by way of context, let me let me finish. Um, ensuring that people really understand the role of nuclear okay. in Canada, right? Sure. Uh, so people surprised to know perhaps that we provide 15% of the clean electricity in, in Canada. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, through COVID here, uh, it's been a, it's just been a real honor to be working with this industry. They have performed and, and, uh, and been there for Canadians like no other industry that I know of. And, and I, I mean that very sincerely. Um, mm -hmm. We, uh, we've gone through COVID and uh, provided, you know, clean electricity, affordable electricity to the hospitals and medical facilities, more than 10 million homes. Right. Um, you know, we, we produce uh, medical isotopes that have been, been saving lives and they've been critical through, through this COVID period. Um, Life-saving um, uh, isotopes that are used to diagnose and treat cancer and respiratory and heart disease. Um, I'm not sure if, if uh, your listeners would be aware of this, but, you know, more than 40% of all of the single-use medical devices in the world uh, are sterilized with our isotopes. Right. And, uh, produced in Canada. They're produced in Canada here. Okay. You know? So um, important that we were able to do that through the pandemic. Our labs, Canadian Nuclear Laboratory, has been amazing. Our supply chain has donated, you know, millions of pieces of uh, personal protection equipment and millions of dollars, $6.5 million in financial aid to charity. Uh, we completed the, you know, get this, Francis, we completed the refurbishment of Darlington 2 mm -hmm. on time and on budget through COVID and right. set a world record for uh, the number of days of uninterrupted uh, operations for a nuclear plant, a world record through, through COVID. So right. uh, very uh, responsive sector and um, we're employing 76,000 people, $17 billion to the GDP. I mean, it, it's, nuclear is a big deal and Canada has a lot to be proud of. In terms of its 60-year history in this uh, in this area, so what was the what was the thing that, that really I, I know you talked a little bit about it, but to move from uh, from solar uh, into the nuclear uh, side of things, what, did you see uh, a, a gap that wasn't being filled in your time in the uh, in the renewable side of things? Yeah, you know, very honestly, uh, after 20 years of being in the renewable space and looking at the accomplishments that that uh, wind and solar have made over that 20-year period mm -hmm. in terms of uh, you know becoming a cost competitive mainstream source of electricity right uh, very very proud to have been part of that but the the fact is you know we've accomplished what we set out to do 20 years ago with renewables it's there as a tool okay. for folks now okay and, gotcha. uh, what we're missing is a, is a partner for renewables that can provide that clean baseload energy and, and be flexible and help follow them and that's nuclear that's small modular reactors and uh, I want to help do for small modular reactors what what uh, 
what uh, others have have done with with uh, wind and solar. I think we we need that, and Canada is is primed and ready to show global leadership on that front. So that's why I'm here. Let's talk a little bit about small small modular reactors (SMRs), and so they're not science fiction. Is is what you're is what you're telling the listener? Yeah. Well, look, you know, uh, small modular reactors have been around for a long time. You think of uh, submarines or freight carriers. Uh, okay aircraft carriers, uh, that the concept is not new. What's new is uh, the, the new forms of technology that are going into small modular reactors. And there's a, there's a number of different technologies that range from uh, molten salt uh, technology to, uh, to, uh, to high pressured gas uh, type mm-hmm. approaches. But what they all have in common, Francis, is that, they're, that they, uh, they're, they're very scalable. Uh, so, like the name suggests, small modular reactors, uh, they come in small units that are actually manufactured in manufacturing plants, and you can combine them to make uh, different, uh, different sizes. They can range from one, one or two megawatts that might uh, provide electricity and power to an indigenous or northern community, right up to uh, uh, you know, a 60 megawatt unit, which you might use to decarbonize the way that you extract oil and gas or mm. use your mining operation. Uh, for for heat and power, or up to 300 megawatts, which sounds like a lot, uh, but it's it's not uh, when you compare it to the conventional big plants, right? Okay, so that'd and be like half the size of a Point La Pro. It would be half the size of a yeah. New, yep, the New Brunswick uh, plant, right? Mm-hmm. And and so so very very scalable, uh, inherent uh, safety features in it. I mean, these things are are just inherently safe, and uh, and when I say that, I mean I cannot physically get to the temperature that would ca- cause any sort of problem okay. uh, for, uh, for, for folks. So, so what happens is um, instead of having these very large plants, which need state involvement to help finance, mm-hmm. you're talking about small plants that are manufactured in a manufacturing facility uh, and shipped to a location like a mining operation or a, an oil and gas operation in northern community. And, um, and uh, they're bite-sized. So it's like, it's like a personal computer compared to mainframe computing, basically. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are they here? Uh, they're here. Yeah. I mean, they're here. Been, they, they're being they're, manufactured because you're, 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 you're talking. So yeah. we, we see a number of them uh, have already been um, uh, deployed in, in Russia and uh, China. And okay. now the West uh, is, uh, is racing to get them rolled out. We just saw the first, uh, first one approved uh, in the United States in Idaho. Um, mm-hmm. New Scale. Uh, they're one of the technologies that's here in Canada, but we're getting very close to ha- approving uh, a number of the designs here. So we've got 12 different technologies going through the uh, review and licensing process with the, the, the regulator here in, in Canada. So you're going to see the first ones uh, connected to the electricity grid. Uh, we're projecting sort of 2029. Okay. And I think you're going to see the smaller ones uh, available before then. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're talking about technology that's going to be providing clean electricity and heat uh, before our, our 2030 uh, target deadline. So when you talk about the smaller ones, where are you, would your best guess be about where the, the first smaller ones would be, uh, would be deployed? Well, uh, you know, we know that uh, the, the plans of Ontario Power Generation and, and SAS Power are to have these connected to the electricity grid before 2030. Okay. Uh, but for the smaller uh, ones, there are very active discussions going on right now with mining companies mm-hmm. uh, and with uh, northern communities and the oil and gas sector. So I see some, uh, I see some transactions happening there for the smaller, uh, we call them very small uh, modular reactors. Right. Uh, but th- those, are, those are discussions that are happening right now with the, uh, 
the utilities. Okay, because a, a series of podcasts that, that we've done recently were about the challenges of supplying electricity in the north. And boy, some of the descriptions of trying to get fuel up there um, to, you know, to, to fuel diesel uh, powered communities would suggest that any uh, solution that is that is less complex would uh, would be more than welcome. Uh, but uh, I mean, are you, are, is this a is this a technology that would be like entirely self-contained? You're talking about a because you said potentially it could be on uh, you know transported uh, on the back of a truck or I guess by barge or and then well, when you you plug it in and it works or yeah you plug it in and it works and there's um, there 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 are different technologies of course but. Uh, with the, with the very small ones, they're actually completely manufactured in a manufacturing plant and shipped there. With okay. the ones that are sort of medium-sized, you, you manufacture the components uh, in the manufacturing plant, ship them there, and put it together there uh, okay. on site. But uh, depending on which technology you use, some of them don't have to have their fuel replaced for like a decade. Okay. So you go into a mining operation, you plug it in, and uh, for lack of a better term, uh, it's been pre-fueled, and it doesn't have to be refueled again for ten years, right? Which is is quite something. So it's like a giant. It's like a giant battery. It's a giant battery that's providing. Uh, in fact, one of them. Yeah, there's a couple of them have battery in their names. <laughs> but the, um, the 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 thing is, uh, with those mining operations, you could literally um, use it in one spot for five years, let's say, and okay. uh, when when you have to shift your geography a little bit, either to another part of the the mine or to another uh, site altogether, you're just moving that uh, asset with you. It's quite okay. something. Well, well I, I want to circle back to this in a, in a couple of minutes, but first, um, if we can go back to sort of the, with the traditional can-do reactors that we have operating um, currently in Canada. One of the issues that uh, is, uh, is raised uh, by people that, uh, that have concerns about nuclear powers with respect to waste What's the perspective that, that you have uh, with respect to uh, the waste issues um, and, and uh, you know, our can-do reactors that have been operating for 60, 60 years? 60 yeah. years? Right. Um, and so, so what's, the, what's the perspective on waste and what are we eventually going to do with this waste? Well, thanks, thanks for the softball question there. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, you know, waste is, uh, is, is really on people's minds, right? And yeah. uh, when, I, when I looked at switching from renewables to uh, to nuclear, there were two things in, in particular in particular that I looked at. One was, uh, is, this, is this stuff about small modular reactors real and does Canada really have a, a leadership role there? And the answer to that, I'm glad to say is yes. Okay. The other area that I needed to uh, satisfy myself on was the waste uh, issue. Mm -hmm. You know, the spent fuel that we have coming from um, our nuclear reactors. And, uh, you know, first of all, I think we have to, we've got to remember that every source of electricity, of power, uh, creates waste, right? Uh, whether you're a solar panel or a wind turbine or, uh, you know, w what have you. It's just that some of those, uh, some of the waste streams that are produced are not only from uh, actually coming up with the fuel, but, but they emit uh, pollution and, and GHGs, CO2 into the air, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas uh, with, uh, with nuclear power, um, there are no emissions, uh, firstly. Uh, and secondly, the nuclear industry uh, is the only um, industry that, that produces electricity that is accountable for every uh, aspect of the waste that it produces. Okay. And for the safe management of it as well. And we're regulated to do that. We're regulated to do that. And we prepay for it. 
So, uh, you know, keep in mind that every uh, form of what do you mean? Sorry, what do you mean by prepay for it? So the, the operators of uh, nuclear facilities are obligated uh, to uh, be putting money aside to pay for the ongoing safe management and disposal of okay. uh, any type of waste it produces. And that includes uh, everything from the spent fuel that we have to decommissioning mm -hmm. a site. Right. So here you have an industry that is actually not accountable for every part of uh, of the production of the energy and managing the, the waste that it produces. And we do that safely, right? I mean, 60 years of operation and nobody, no member of the public has ever been injured, let alone, you know, killed by uh, the, the waste that, that we produce. We're, we lead the world in terms of managing this stuff. And I think the other thing, uh, Francis, it's really important for people to understand is that we produce so little waste. Right. Mm. Um, consider that uranium is a million times more power dense than coal, okay. a million times more power dense than coal. Right. So, you know, when you hear people stand up and say, you know, I could fit um, all of my energy needs into this Coke bottle of, you know, uranium mm -hmm. for your entire life, not just electricity, but all of your energy needs. That's how little uh, fuel it takes to produce, you know, a vast amount of energy. So. Despite powering 60% of uh, Ontario's energy uh, electricity needs for the last uh, 60 years, mm -hmm. uh, you could literally uh, just fill up a, a small number of uh, hockey rinks to the floorboards uh, with, the, the, with the waste that was produced. So there's a very small um, part, uh, a very small amount of waste that we're handling responsibly. And the last thing I'll say uh, on this, Francis, is just that the entire life cycle of nuclear, in terms of its carbon footprint, from mining the uranium to decommissioning. Uh, is uh, you know one of the smallest of any um, of any electricity source. Uh, you know it's it's equal to wind. It's less than solar. Um, it's less than than water power. Uh, it's a very uh, very small carbon footprint. So for those reasons, um, you know nuclear is 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 the most responsible industry for having to deal with uh, its waste safely and, and properly. And is that um, is is the waste picture look different? When you move into the world of small modular reactors, the self, potentially self-contained units, um, or is it the same issue? I, I guess presumably at some point um, there will be waste from those small modular reactors that will have to be treated in the same way? Yeah, well, what's mind-blowing about this um, is, well, a couple of things. Firstly, if, if, you, if you can think that these massive uh, reactors in Ontario that provide so much electricity have produced so little waste over 60 years. Imagine right. how small the, the waste, uh, the spent fuel from these small modular reactors is. But uh, some of these technologies actually use spent fuel. They recycle the spent fuel from the larger plants. Oh. To use as fuel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you know, that doesn't change the fact that, uh, you know, uh, there, there's a, uh, uh, a process underway to to have a, a permanent storage site for the existing um, uh, spent fuel, uh, but there are technologies that are coming online right now that are actually going to use that spent fuel. So okay, so you you'd mentioned that there's a there's a, a, a process to uh, identify a permanent storage site. So what's there isn't a permanent storage site now. Where, where what's the what's the what's the process today, and what's it going to look like once we've got a permanent storage site? Right. So, so the process today is that the spent fuel is stored on site uh, at uh, the the, uh, the nuclear uh, generating facilities. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in you know these un unbelievable uh, uh, 
sort of industrial setting with um, with these these containers, mm-hmm. and uh, the permanent solution is is being um, is called a deep geological reserve, and it's sort of a combination of uh, natural and and um, and uh, engineered uh, uh, system that is is going to allow us to store the stuff permanently underground. Right. So the uh, nuclear waste management organization is in the final processes of selecting those sites in consultation with two communities right now. Okay. Any, uh, any idea when they're likely to come to a landing in terms of where they're, they're I think the we're looking at the, 20, sort of the 2040 uh, timeframe, I believe. I'd have to be checked on that, but 2040 timeframe to actually have it operating. All right. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned earlier um, medical isotopes. Medical what isotopes. Is, I, I thought we were going to be talking about, about uh, nuclear power, nuclear generation and, and the, you know, the place that nuclear power, what is, what are, what do medical isotopes have to do with, uh, with nuclear power? Well, so, so part of the, uh, part of what the industry has been able to achieve in Canada, again, has been a world leader uh, on this is that a, a sort of byproduct of the process that can be produced is uh, our different forms of medical isotopes. And um, in particular, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the applications for, um, the isotopes range from treating cancer to uh, sterilizing uh, medical equipment yeah. to um, to uh, actually being used in various forms of the agricultural um, industry. And uh, what Canada has done is um, secured a, an important role in terms of providing, I guess, about 70% of the world's supply of, of cobalt-60. Wow. Which is, you know, um, a really important uh, isotope that's being for used. Me- for, medicine, yeah, so yeah, yeah, medical, for medical, uh, for medical purposes. For nuclear we're, medicine. Yeah. yeah. So we're being, we're, we're using those uh, isotopes um, to help people, you know, not just here, but, but globally. So, yeah, an important role. So it's a byproduct of, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the process. Yeah, it's an added, it's an added on process that, uh, to, to the reactors themselves. And some of the companies now are, are doing some very innovative things by bolting on the sort of manufacturing of these isotopes to the, the ongoing sort of electricity generation process. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, was, do you know if that was the, the intention to begin with, or was this one of the, was something that was originally seen as a, a bug until we realized it was a feature? No, well, I think, uh, I, I think uh, you know, this has had a long history in, in Canada and started out in our, in our national laboratories with, uh, with smaller reactors that were specifically designed to produce these isotopes because they're so important. Um, and then uh, we, we basically figured out uh, ways from the laboratory to bring that um, and produce them in conjunction with the, uh, the large-scale um, uh, generating stations that were operating. Mm-hmm. So it went from the lab to being a practical application with our our our, um, our units, uh, our actual power generating units. Wow. Okay. All right. So let's let's cast our minds into the future. We've got a, a government that has uh, made commitments um, with respect to GHG reductions by 2030, and then by by 2050, the electricity sector is is uh, more than 80% uh, GHG uh, free at this stage. We've reduced greenhouse gas emissions already by 40% since 2005. But what is the future gonna look like specifically with respect to, to electricity? And, and I know you, you talked about um, small modular reactors probably by the end of this decade, but if we cast our mind to 2050, and okay, now we're getting to a little bit of science fiction maybe, but if we cast our mind to, to 2050, um, and the aspiration of being 
um, you know, net zero by 2050. What role is, is nuclear um, uh, going to, I was going to say, you know, what, what role may it play? But I mean, the net zero by 2050 is, is a big lift. Um, what, what role do you think nuclear will have to play to be able to, to move us in that direction? Well, you know, I'm, depending on the day uh, and how I feel when I get up, Francis, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes less and sometimes more optimistic about what we, we can achieve, right? Uh -huh. on, on the less optimistic days, uh, you know, I sit back and, and I say, uh, you know, 80% of Canada's energy needs are met by fossil fuels, right? Mm -hmm. So you and I spend a lot of time talking about the importance of electricity, about our clean electricity grid, yeah. and about electrification. Um, but the fact is that only 20% 20 20 of, of our energy needs are actually met by electricity. Right. So uh, we've got, a, we've got a, a long way to go um, in terms of... Uh, in terms of uh, building the type of um, power generating assets that we need to to displace that uh, those fossil fuels in our overall energy system, and uh, you know we're going to be able to do that using our clean electricity system in certain areas. Uh, you look at electric vehicles, for example, mm -hmm. right? That's a very promising mm -hmm. area. Um, there are, there are other areas where uh, electricity can can um, readily move in and, and displace uh, fossil fuels over time to help us work towards net zero 2050. But then there are there's some of those hard to reach places too, right? The, the industrial processes yeah. that, uh, yeah. that, that, have to be, uh, that have to be changed. And, and that's where I'm really excited about, uh, this is where the optim optimism comes in, is okay. I'm really excited about the role of nuclear and particular, in particular small modular reactors um, because they not only produce uh, clean electricity, but they produce clean, high temperature, very consistent heat mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And you can take that heat and do a, uh, hit a lot of those um, hard to decarbonize areas, right? So you can use that heat to produce high quality steam to decarbonize the way that we produce oil and gas. Mm -hmm. You can bring that small modular reactor into a mining operation and be providing not only electricity, but all of their heating sources. You can take that electricity or that heat and you can produce hydrogen in a very cost effective okay. way yep. and start bringing in a, a new um, cleaner fuel source to hit some of those fuel areas that we have. And as I said, uh, you know, these, these small modular reactors are scalable, they're, they're flexible so they can support uh, and bring out uh, the best in our uh, other clean electricity and energy sources. So I feel, um, I feel very optimistic when I look at the sort of leadership and progress that Canada is making on the small modular reactor front, building onto this incredible base of uh, uh, of activity we have going on in our conventional nuclear sector. Now we were, for a time, we were seen as a world leader with respect to our technology with the CANDU reactors. It sounds as though we are still very much a world leader when it comes to medical isotopes. Um, what role potentially can Canada play um, on, the, on the sort of world nuclear stage in the future? Uh, well, we are. Uh, we continue to be leaders with our, our can-do technology. You're right, and there are countries right now that are uh, uh, looking at uh, bringing in new units of uh, can-do technology. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, that's important to know. We've got opportunities to potentially do some uh, uh, additional can-do reactors here in Canada, depending on where the need for electricity goes. But where we are uh, shining is. Uh, 
uh, with this next generation of nuclear technology and the small modular reactors. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been incredibly fortunate to have this amazing collaboration and coordination between government, regulator, uh, industry on small modular reactors. Um, we produced a, uh, a small modular reactor roadmap a couple of years ago, which uh, has really brought the industry together. That was under NRCAN's leadership. And uh, it, it, has, it has resulted in a, a pathway for us to develop and deploy uh, these small modular reactors. And as you've seen, Francis, uh, this has been matched politically now, right? We've had mm -hmm. the premiers of Alberta, Saskatchewan, yep. Ontario, and New Brunswick sign a memorandum of understanding to develop and deploy these. We have 12 technologies going through the licensing and review process uh, right now, including, including some homegrown technologies that, uh, uh, that are right up there front and center. Mm. We've got uh, New Brunswick working on the next, next generation of technologies. We call them Gen 4 technologies and building up a whole industry there. Okay. Ontario, Saskatchewan, getting ready to put them onto the electricity grid before 2030. And now Alberta uh, looking at um, using these in the, to, to decarbonize and, and create a really even more competitive oil and gas product, right? So, so Canada is uh, moving fast. Uh, we're waiting for, uh, you know, we're waiting for a signal out of the budget from the federal government that we're going to mm -hmm. go down this road. And right. uh, I think we're going to get it. So in summary, a bright future. Well, it's, uh, let's hope so. It's, it's, it's been a crazy world lately. Uh, but, uh, but, uh, but I think, uh, you know, when we look at how Canadians are feeling, Francis, we, we just did a, we just did a study um, with Abacus polling. Yes. Because um, we were wondering about what the impact of uh, COVID was on Canadians' attitudes around the need to, uh, to address climate change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what we found, and so this, these results have just come out of the field uh, two weeks ago, and what we found is that 91% uh, of Canadians cite climate change as a serious issue. And in fact, uh, it, is the, uh, it ranks number one as the most serious issue in Canada. Uh, compared even above government debt and deficit and even above unemployment and economic growth. Right. So, so there's this, there's... And even there's, in the time of COVID-19. Even in the time of COVID-19. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, people are suffering. There's no doubt about that. We're, we're in the middle of a crisis, but there's this recognition that we, we need to uh, address climate change that is, is not going to be, uh, that is not going to be uh, put on the back burner um, even though we're mm -hmm. going through this crisis. And I, mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, as you said, we, when we look out to, to 2030 and 2050, we, we can't get to a net zero without, uh, without uh, nuclear. And uh, so I'm pretty confident that the Canada is going to be able to show that leadership and we're going to be able to present solutions at home and, and, and hopefully globally. Mm -hmm. Hey, John, one of the things I ask um, everybody that comes onto the podcast is if there's a book that you, you're either the book you're reading now or a book that you recently read that you would recommend to the listener. What would that book be? Well, first, I got a little confession to make. So I, I spend uh, I, I spend my, my free time um, writing fiction for young adults. OK, so let me put that on. The, oh, on the wow. Table. So writing most, uh, fiction for so young most, adults. Yeah. So so most of your uh, yeah, more sort of in the fantasy genre there. So uh -huh. so I don't think too many of your uh, listeners would be interested in that. But I'll tell you I'll tell you what I am uh, reading right now. It's a little bit of a tree theme I've got going. And uh, one of them is called uh, The Overstory by uh, an American named Richard Powers. And it's a series of short stories that are all held together uh, by, uh, by the, the character's connection uh, with trees in different ways. And it, it, uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2019. Um, really great, 
great read called The Overstory by Richard Powers. And I'm, reaching, I'm, I'm reading another book right now by a Canadian author named, uh, called uh, Greenwood. Greenwood. Oh, that one, yeah, by Michael uh, Christie. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, centered around, it's centered around trees, and it's a, it's a post-apocalyptic story that takes place in um, Canada's last, uh, last um, oasis, which is an old growth forest in B.C., Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it sort of uh, combines uh, forestry with climate change and family dysfunction, and it, it's also a, a prize winner. So it's uh, it's worth a good read too. I gotta ask, you're an author? Well, not really an author, uh, and uh, someone who enjoys spending time uh, trying to be an author. Sure. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> yeah. Hey, John, thank you very much. It was it was a, it was an, an interesting conversation and and a, and a delight to hear that you're also an aspiring author. Oh, well, look, look uh, Francis, I uh, uh, really uh, want to give you a shout out for the work uh, that you continue to do in the leadership of the Electricity Association, all of your good work there and uh, doing things like this that uh, help bring the community together uh, to talk about these important issues uh, we have. So thank you for having me awesome. on the uh, show. Well, thank you very much for that, John. Appreciate it. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.